Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. This is Cliff, and tonight we have a fantastic interview, but there's something you should know. B, she's a real researcher, but George is not a real witness. Well, he kind of is, but we had to change his name. That's because we try to protect the witness identity whenever possible, especially when it's an ongoing situation like this. So George, the name George, is actually my friend's dog. And my friend's dog is not a Bigfoot witness, but that's what we're naming the Bigfoot witness for this episode. Again, we don't want this guy's name out. We don't want his location out. We want to protect not only the witnesses, but the Bigfoots involved in this situation. So yeah, B is a real person, a real name. George is a real person, but a you know not so real name. Thank you for understanding, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond. Featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Yeah, Cliff, would you let me know earlier today that you were going to be free this evening for an interview with someone? I know you've been talking up about uh, B. Mills and those footprints she got out of Ohio and the auto recordings that we've heard before. And I thought, you know, she's, I got to talk to her anyways. I'm going to Hawking Hills to her event in two weeks. So I called her up and I said, hey, will you come on tonight? And she said, yes, I'd be glad to do it. Call me tonight. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Because, you know, B is, is one of the best researchers out there right now. But, you know, again, not, not a lot of people know who she is. And a lot of people underestimate her for a variety of reasons, none of which are valid. You know, from everything stupid, like, well, she's a woman, to like, well, she's a little unusual. Yeah, she's kind of weird. But, like, aren't we all? We're doing this, you know? Um, like her, But she is a rock-solid investigator. She's been doing some of the best research out of anybody for the last couple of years between her amazing Sasquatch vocalizations from Southeast Ohio to this, these footprints that she's cast this past year, they are phenomenal. And in my opinion, you know, if I were, you know, say Lauren Coleman and I was looking for the next person to be cryptozoologist of the year, um, I think it probably should be B because she has done so much excellent work. She is documenting as well as anybody is, and she's gotten some fantastic results out of one small area. So essentially she's learning about this particular family group of Sasquatches or at least the ones in that particular area. If it's not that same family, it's their neighboring family or something. But um, I can't say enough nice things about B. So I'm looking forward to this interview. B Mills. How are you guys tonight? All right, Great, how are you? you? Wonderful, thank you. Nice. I, I was musing earlier uh, when I, I heard this might happen, um, that I'll be on with B and Bobo. <laughs> if, if only I can be on with BB and Bo. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> or BB and Bobo? That oh, works. We brought you on to learn a little bit about your background and what you've been up to lately. Uh, so if you don't mind, let's let's get into it. If you wanna? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, I was just telling Bobo that I really admire all the work you've been putting in the last few years, and the results are really starting to come out too. I mean, we know you've been getting good, or at least I know, maybe the listening audience doesn't know, that you've been getting fantastic audio recordings for the last two or three years. We definitely want to talk about that. And then later, we want to talk about these footprints that you pulled as well, because they're just astonishing as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, if you're open to anything, um, perhaps we should just start at the beginning. Like, what in the world are you doing looking into Bigfoot? I mean, how did that happen? Tell us how that evolved and what, what brought you here. I've always been kind of a nature girl. I kind of, I grew up in rural Pickaway County with nothing but cornfields, a patch of woods and a uh, creek. And that was about it in the middle of nowhere. And school was 30 miles away. So I really didn't have much in the way of friends, but I had a lot of books and a lot of time outside. So um, I, you know, first heard about legends and lore when I was young, but never really gave it much of a thought until actually, funny story, I attended the 2013 Ohio Bigfoot Conference, kind of as a joke. And it was just really exciting. And I was actually a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of people there who had all of these stories and all of these stories just seemed to have a real common thread to them and being the perfect gargoyle, just watching and listening all of this conversation going on. I thought to myself, there has to be more than this than just nothing. So, um, since then, you know, met a few folks and wow, uh, maybe call it beginner's luck sort of, uh, I, had a thermal sighting maybe a month and a half later. And then in 2014, April 6th. What was that? Where'd you have your thermal sighting? What'd you see? Oh, well, that happened. <laughs> okay, let me back up. So that during that weekend of the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, I was solo tent camping and never really been unnerved in the woods, never really got creeped out or felt the urge to leave. But that night was a completely different story. So much so there was, I, I literally packed up my tent, threw it in the back of my car, grabbed my food off the fire, put it in the front seat and drove two hours home. <laughs> I know, right? So uh, I reached out to a gentleman I had met during that conference and he kind of pulled it out of me like why did you leave why didn't I see you and I was like well I had to get home and so finally I was like some really weird things happened all my electronics died my I had two brand new headlamps they both died a just really uncomfortable feeling so we went back there uh maybe about like a month and a half later and I guess I went on my a site investigation, you could call it, being completely new, not knowing anything about this. And evening had fallen, and it was dark out. And he said, hey, I've got a thermal. Have you ever looked through a thermal before? I said, no. So we went down kind of where I was camping that night. And, uh, well, there were, and, and, you know, he was showing me, you know, that's a rock. Those are trees, you know, very basic things. And there we saw two deer, you know, four legs, two deer. It was across the water. 
And so I'm looking through it and kind of crazy. There was a, there was a new heat signature through the camera and I hand it back to him. I was like, so what's this third thing? And he's looking through it and he goes, Hmm, I don't know. And then he goes, Oh bleep. It just stood up. Oh bleep. It just took two steps. And being a perfect gentleman, he handed it back to me so I could see what was happening. And I watched this heat signature that was much taller than the two deer who were still standing there walk up a ravine and just kind of fade away. You can tell he's a perfect gentleman because he censored all the bad words he was saying with beeps. (laughs) No, I did that for you. Oh, that was you. Oh, you're the perfect gentleman. I appreciate that. You're very well. We got to keep it classy. You attended the Ohio conference as a joke, but it appears the joke was on you at the end of the day here. Oh, and it got so much better. I was actually, I was actually embarrassed. And I think, and, and I was mortified and I kind of like those mysteries. And when I can't figure out something that, especially when it happens to me, you know, and it's like, why did that just happen? What's going on? Does this make sense? This makes no sense. I need to go find I need to go find some clues, you know? I I know you're a certified naturalist. Were you at that time, or is that something that happened after your Bigfoot encounter? That was after my Bigfoot encounter. Okay. I just want to get it out there that you are a certified naturalist. Do you know what's going on out in the woods? Oh, it's a wonderful program, and I absolutely encourage everyone. And I know um, in Ohio, it's the Ohio Certified Volunteer Naturalist. It's a through the Ohio State University Extension Office. And, you know, it's just basically a class. I mean, anyone can sign up for it. And it's 40 hours. And fortunately, I'm in the Hocking Hills area. So all of our classes were in the field. So they were very hands-on. I mean, you're in the creek with, you know, nets and you are climbing hills and you are in the dirt. It's absolutely, it's mind-blowing just how much of our natural environments out there. And it kind of the symbiotic relationship between, you know, when you go out looking for Bigfoot and knowing your environment. I would agree with that. I think that uh, I've often said that Sasquatching, you know, Bigfooting in general is a multi multidisciplinary uh, gig essentially. Cause you got to know a little bit about the animals. You got to know a little bit about the plants. You got to know a little about the ecology in general, the geology, the geography. You got on a list, man. You got to know a little bit about everything to be a successful Bigfoot, or at least it sure helps. Maybe you don't have to, but it sure would help. Oh, definitely. At least narrow down a, a what would be considered a good area. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and really, really, a naturalist, um, that, that, that's a word you don't hear a lot anymore, but it was a lot more common back in the 1800s, um, really, because at one time people were considered naturalists, and then the word science came up, because science is a fairly new term. It was like born sometime in the mid or second half of the 1800s, I believe. Before that, they were considered naturalists. Um, and really, at, nowadays, I think uh, naturalist is a generalist in science or outdoor outdoor sciences, whereas a scientist, a true scientist is specialized, you know, a biologist or a chemist or a whatever, physicist, that sort of thing. But back in the day, a naturalist was a scientist before they got specific about their disciplines. So you're just carrying on an ancient, or not ancient, but you're carrying on a tradition um, that led to science essentially. So good for you. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've actually had to reach out to farmers and hunters because i guess if in a 
different light that you know the outdoors folks you know the the farmers well they have a different skill set and knowledge of the outdoors as opposed to the hunters it, there's so much learning i just love it so it seems that you you're you're obviously inquisitive you've got a good brain on your shoulders and and um so may i ask like uh, for the for the audience um what do you do for a living that how do you oh. apply all the all these smarts that you've acquired so i'm a registered nurse oh okay my background go. is in trauma and the emergency room. And right now I'm uh, working in kind of a specialty area in orthopedics and podiatry, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, oh, that's cool. What kind of insight has that given you? You know, actually, um, some of these most recent finds, these uh, casts, I've actually had a podiatrist look at them and vet them as being of a living individual as opposed to, you know, uh, like a platform. I want to talk about the cast a little bit later, but let's 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 put a pin in that for a minute because I, I don't think that I, the casts are phenomenal. I've, I've I put my own eyes on them; they're really really great. But they're even better knowing the context of what's been happening in your corner of Ohio down there. So um, maybe we can back up a little bit from the cast, and we'll get back to them in a minute, and just talk about um, your research area and how you discovered it or how it discovered you, depending on how you feel about it. Um, and then what sort of work you've been doing there? I was invited into the BFRO in uh, late 2013, early 2014. And um, super exciting stuff. So uh, I was kind of a you know newer investigator, not didn't really have a whole lot of reports of my own. So I went out with different folks, but this phone call came in early June in 2016, and it came in through the, you know, 1-800 hotline. And this gentleman expressed a lot of concern regarding possible Sasquatch activity. You know, so there were vocalizations, things were being thrown at his house. He, his family felt terrorized. And so the Mark DeWorth fielded the phone call and did a quick phone interview with this gentleman. And then I got a phone call out of the blue and said, hey, you should listen to this. So, and do you know where this location is? And I, think I looked it up and wow, I live seven miles from there. I drive by that area almost every day. Is this for real? And <laughs> And so he said, well, we're going to go do a site investigation. Would you like to come? I said, absolutely. So we get down there and it's just, I'd already driven past the property a couple times and just, you know, looked at the area, pulled up some maps, tried to do my homework before I got there. And um, when, when we, I actually beat my other investigators there. When we pulled up, it was like a scene out of a movie. His whole family was there. He had friends there with their entire family. And I parked my car, grabbed my notebook and my recorder, get out. And this gentleman just comes flying around the side of the house. And he's dressed in full fatigues, complete with a wound ready. He had... Two sidearms. He had an ankle knife. He had an AR-15 strapped around his chest. This man 
meant business. And just by the look on his face, I felt like he absolutely meant what he, you know, the message that he left in his phone call that, you know, he was concerned for his family. George, he, he had a, when Clip and I went there, this is a couple years after that, he was out, he came out with a 30 round clip, you know, semi-automatic 308 rifle and his son had a big, you know, high caliber rifle also. And it's, they're quite the characters out there. Yeah. George is unlike anyone else I probably ever met. I love the guy. Um, although I, I will say he is a, um, an acquired taste, I suppose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he kind of scared me at first and I'm sure George would laugh to hear that, but, um, yeah, he is quite the character and, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of surprised he only had two sidearms on because there's a, <laughs> there's a left and a right and a front and the back. So. Oh, absolutely. And when, when Cliff and I got there at the time we went there, we heard an Ohio how within 15 minutes of getting out of the car at like two in the afternoon, broad daylight. Yes. People can hear that uh, the message he left on the on the phone call. That original message is on the BFRO website. So if anyone wants to listen to it, it's a pretty compelling call. When you hear it, you get a sense of what was going on out there. Well, you know that might be something for um, our editor Jeff Thomas, uh, one of our two our two editors. He does all the film stuff on YouTube, you know, and of course Matt Pruitt does our uh, audio stuff. But uh, maybe Jeff Thomas can go grab that and throw it onto. Actually, maybe both of our editors could go grab that and throw it into the mix right now and just throw that in. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. There's a write-up. There's a really good write-up on it also. And I think, is there vocalizations included in that posting? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, oh, yeah. check that out. It's on the BFRO website. Or perhaps right now our, edit our editors will throw it into the show right now. I don't fix the issue, actually. You know, it's fine, cool, you know. Screaming, howling, killing my animals, and I hunted it last night and started hunting me. I have crystal clear audio and pretty good video. All night video, but it is crystal clear, and it's been almost every night for a steady week. And it's at its point of just throwing stuff at us. So I sent in a thing a while back, a little bit of my, my yeah, excuse me, a little bit of my background, Lieutenant, maybe 11 years, uh, at a large touring corporation, so I kind of want to keep my name out of the spotlight, but any ideas or suggestions before I kill it? Um, next step is killing it. I really don't want to, but um, I don't know if you guys have a better idea than I do and know this is not a prank call. Thank you and have a good day. Again, my phone number is seven. Yeah, that's right. It's not live. <laughs> yeah, then again, maybe not. Maybe they won't, and I'm just saying this. Who knows? Just want to keep the, the crowd, you know, the listeners, so they can Check it out so you know, they can listen for themselves and know what we're talking about. It was rather emotional. It really was. Um, yeah, I, get, I, get, I got scared talking to George the first time, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> well, when he did you know, send that a clip that is posted on the BFRO website, um, that was kind of the pivotal moment where, all, you know, all joking aside, uh, we had that audio clip sent out to one of our linguists and it came back. He vetted it, compared it to um, the one of the original recordings of, you know, the classic Ohio Howl. And that that was kind of the, that that moment. 
And of course, you know, the witness kept calling and calling and calling saying, what are you guys going to do about this? I asked for help. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And that's when we decided it, let's get serious and let's start a recording project immediately. Now, at that point, had George, the witness, seen one of these things or just been troubled and rocks thrown and all that whole thing? He reports a history of having seen one mm -hmm. earlier. At, by the time we had gotten there, yes, he reported to us that one particular evening, there was things being thrown at the house and there were vocalizations. He told me his wife was locked themselves with her two children in their bedroom with firearms. And she told him, whatever it is, go out there and kill it. This gentleman, being the husband, father, strong man, went out there and went around. He has a he has like a outdoor barn and then he had two chicken pens. He had one for his chickens and then further back near the tree line of his property, he had a pull-up pen, which are just baby chicks. Baby chicks, they'll come right up to you squawking, wanting food. They have just no fear. Every, everything is going to give them a handout. Uh, but what he saw, he saw it look like a person who, that was reaching, actively reaching over a six-foot cattle fence down into the pull-up pen. I believe he said he yelled at it. The person slash Bigfoot stood up and had a chicken in either hand and took off running towards the tree line. He said he went to go follow it. And by the time, and this gentleman, he's pretty active. He's pretty fit, ran after it. It had already gone down the hillside into his hollow. His, he has a hollow behind his property and his home sits right at the mouth of it on the high point. So he's in a pretty advantageous place as far as game comes in. It had already gone down the hollow across this tiny little stream and was heading back up the side of the hollow by the time he caught visual on it. And he said he sat down to take a knee, lifted up his firearm, and then he heard noise coming up because it's kind of a like a promontory, almost a point. He heard noise coming up from one side. And I said, like, a branch fell right in front of him because there was a little game trail that went down to the creek. He took his eyes off, got the suspect with the chickens back in his sights, and then he said, like, a bigger, almost a, a log fell in front of him. And then he hears, like, a crashing noise, like something's coming at him, coming from either side of this point towards him, and that's when he made a full retreat took off, ran back to the house, went into his safe, and pulled out a 50 caliber. It's not uncommon for, you know, country folk to have these kind of high-powered rifles. However, he said there was all the screaming going on and howling going on, and he said it was just absolute chaos, and he was so concerned, he actually just went ahead and started firing. Well, he obviously so, missed. I mean, he didn't he didn't get it, right? Correct. Well, you know, uh, when we went and visited, George showed me, he told me that same story um, with uh, probably fewer details, but we were actually on site at the time. 
And he says, you know, I was standing right there and, and like the fence was still bent over. They never quite fixed the fence or whatever. It was still yeah. bent over from that day. And um, I don't know if I remember, I'm not very excellent at uh, judging distances or anything, but I would say George was maybe, I don't know, 60 yards away from the creature at the time, maybe. And George is a pretty athletic guy. He's pretty fit, you know, and when he took off chasing the thing and it went off into the woods, he said by the time he got that that 50 or 60 yards, however long it was, it might even be fewer, maybe it's like 40 or 50 yards, actually. I'll just say 50. By the time he traveled that 50 yards and stepped into the brush, the thing had already gone down the entire hollow, across the creek, and then up halfway, almost to the top of the opposite side of the slope. He said it was just standing there looking at him. And he told, I remember he said, it was just right there across from me. And I looked at that thing and I said, anything that goes that fast, like I'm scared to death of. And he told me that, yeah, he was actually scared of the thing. And he's not the kind of guy to get scared of much. And that's when he went back to get a bigger gun. <laughs> You're going to need a bigger gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So when we did the site investigation, when we first arrived there, there actually, I think it was two days later, there was actually an impression that was in the, the middle of this small stream, nothing castable just because of the water erosion, but there, there was definitely a print there, which is also available on that report to look at. And so that kind of started it all off. This guy's stories, this guy's location, you were familiar with the area. And so you had yourself a, a research location. What did you decide to do with that research location? We talked about it a lot, Mark, Mark Dorth and I. We decided to take a completely passive approach. Aggression is not usually something, at least in Ohio, you don't hear about the, the big aggressive Sasquatches, and especially you know, he already had game cams down there. He already had, you know, big bright barn lights. He had most of those things that you know would typically deter that kind of activity. So we figured a passive approach would be the best bet. So we started um, a LDR project, a long duration recording project, on his property, just to help give his report more substance. And if there was this kind of activity going on, besides his report, perhaps we would be able to intervene. So what ensued after that was every night, all I had was a little Tascam DR05, absolutely not programmable, eight batteries every single day. So every single day, I go out there, <laughs> change batteries, make sure the card was working, and set the recorder to go off. So I tried to get there just before dusk, and when I got off work, I just stopped by on my way home. Was it out of your way, or was it on the way home literally? Literally, it was about two miles out of my way. That's it. Oh, that's pretty close, though. It's in a, it's in a very interesting area. It's not in you know, in deep woods, it's not, it, it's actually sort of on the outskirts, which, you know, 10 years prior would have been considered more rural, but this is, there's a lot of agriculture in the area. There's still a plenty of forest area, but the, the location itself is, is very interesting. 
it's right on the end moraines. It's right kind of where the glacier stopped and the last glacier aged and started creating the terrain that's more typical of southeastern, south central Ohio, where you have those kind of deep ravines, you have those, you know, sandstone, you have recess caves, you have, you know, and there's also uh, the mouth of a river there, uh, as well as uh, res two reservoir dams nearby, and a uh, wildlife area, very, very close, all within two and a half, three miles. The results that we were getting were immediate. There were a lot of field trials that went on, a lot of uh, trial and errors, a lot of different equipment, reached out to a couple different folks who had experience with, you know, using recording equipment. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's been quite a learning experience, but it was just impressive to get the, this audio recording just immediately and send it out, have it analyzed and come back with such positive results in this particular area. So every day it was kind of like one of those, I can't think of the movie, but, oh, it's from the princess bride where he says, Good night. Good job. I'll probably kill you tomorrow. Huh. So every time I went out there, I made sure to go walk in that hollow. And I walked, I walked, I walked. And I just, I, he told me I had access to all this property. And I said, okay. So every day I walked down there and every day this gentleman would say, are you carrying any weapons? And I said, I've got a pen and a tape measure and a piece of paper. And he goes, well, you might not come out every day. <laughs> they say the pen's mightier than the sword, but perhaps not down in the hollow, huh? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You know, uh, and I was, I was actually hoping for some type of, you know, activity or, or anything, you know, to, to substantiate you know, his reports of such aggressive behaviors. But I was down there constantly, and I, I, I personally didn't experience anything like that. You're not obnoxious. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I can see George aggravating the neighbors. There's that. And, you know, in talking to the family, they had not done anything to provoke these kind of reactions or this, you know, they weren't doing wood knocks. They weren't doing howls. They weren't throwing things into the woods. So it was really a very interesting, you know, off the back type of investigation because it, it was all, you, you almost had to put together a scientific process for this. You know, you have a, you have the problem, what's going on, what's logical, what makes sense and what kind of outcomes are we hoping to get out of this? So all sorts of things going on. And, um, there, we're just trying to figure out what, was the reason for all of this aggressive behavior. And as it turned out, the vocalizations kept intensifying during the summer and kind of reached a climax late August before they, everything kind of tapered down once the, because there was, there's a nice, uh, there was a cornfield that year. And when the corn came down and the leaves came down, then the audio stopped. And by that point, 
after, you know, late August, the aggression stopped too. And the family was a lot more comfortable even being outside. So, but taking that passive approach and reminding the family, don't agitate. And I know there, there are, you know, some people call it like habituators or habituation. And it was kind of like one of those, well, are they leaving? Because every once in a while they would throw, you know, food scraps and leftovers, you know, out in the out in the woods behind the tree line. It almost seemed like a territory match. Like, these are my woods. You stay out of them. And I'm going to eat your chickens. But it was almost like the, the these Bigfoot were habituating the family, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, because they're not living on George's property. George is living on theirs. You know, it really kind of seemed like that because the the home that they had bought, they had just bought in November of 2015, but not had moved in full time until that spring of 2016. And after that, that's when all this activity started and the aggression. Prior to that, the house had been empty for the better part of three years. Oh, yeah. And of course, there's a history of sightings in this neighborhood. When uh, Bobo and I were there, George invited a number of his neighbors over to tell us what's been going on in their lives. And the sightings have gone back decades and decades and decades until these middle-aged men were like young, young whippersnappers running around doing teenage stuff. They're running into these things in the neighborhood. Absolutely. And that was a real eye-opener. And and especially since uh, the farmers and these farmers... They're educated. They are more affluent. They have nothing to gain from telling, you know, these stories. And if anything, there it was kind of, you know, still that stigma. So, and when you guys came over, it was absolutely fantastic uh, having them open up and tell these historical stories because it just helped lend more credibility to this investigation and try to figure out. You know, what kind of clues can we pull out of this to establish some sort of, um, I hesitate to use the word pattern, but maybe like an ebb and a flow of their activity, I guess. Or a farm of learned men. <laughs> B, let me ask you, this: um, why do you hesitate to use the word pattern? I hesitate to use the word pattern just because... I don't feel at this point I have, and, and I'm getting there. I'm, I'm more comfortable with it after, you know, working this area for almost four years. It's just the documentation. Historically speaking, it there is absolutely a pattern, but getting it on, you know, on paper where you can, you can see. And I mean, stories are fantastic, but I'm really interested in the evidence. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've I've been on my soapbox all summer long about that one issue right there. I I every I'm I'm trying to be nice about it, but it's time to move past the stories. It really is. You know, tens of thousands of stories of people seeing these things has gotten us here, and it's a great foundation to work from. And you know, and if if you're into stories and that's your main focus, then God bless you. That's fantastic. Chase what you like to do by all means, but for the sake of the subject itself, it's time to move past that. 
we need to start gathering more evidence, start looking for these patterns that are hidden in the data. You know, if you're gathering stories, do something with them besides just retell them. Put them down on a spreadsheet. Look for uh, dates. Look for locations. Look for moon phases. Look for temperatures. Look for barometric readings. Look for something that uh, comes up again and again because, gosh, it's just time to get past. I saw one. It was cool. I'm a Bigfooter. No, no. I saw one. It was cool. What was the moon phase? What was the temperature? You know, where, where were you? What other animals did you see? It's time to get past that. And it's time to get to the evidence, to the nitty gritty. So I, I'm glad there, that uh, you have also taken up that banner, B. So we, we can uh, we can get shot on the battlefield together for toting that flag. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, yes. I, I, there, there's, there are little threads that match. So it's putting those puzzle pieces together. So yes, I totally agree. I'm over here nodding my head yes. Vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. So B, the, you started this recording project on the property. How long have you been doing it now? You mean what, what happened to my life? No, no, just <laughs> how many years have you put in? And I want to ask you how, much, how many of your own dollars you put in. I mean, I know that's quite substantial as well because you're dedicated. But, um, you know, what has it been, three, four years now or something? It's been since July of 2016. Yeah, so three solid years of doing it. And, um, and I, I mean, Bobo and I have both heard these vocalizations. Not a lot of them have been published, um, but I think they do constitute some of the best vocalizations ever recorded of a Sasquatch. And you have so many. How, uh, tell us about some of the more interesting calls that you've uh, heard, that you've recorded, rather. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the best way I can describe those is to go by years, because every year seems to be just a little bit different uh, as far as the vocalizers go than the previous year. So they're absolutely amazing. And so the 2016 found a total of four vocalizers. Finally, finally, that year, I, I was there uh, with my... A research partner, and we're on the property, and there's nothing quite like hearing a vocalization firsthand. It is just, it's one of the more breathtaking moments. It's one of those more, I don't even know what I'm hearing moments. You can't even wrap your mind around it. It's like the first time, you know, if you've seen a Sasquatch, there's just a complete disconnect. So having had that opportunity to hear it firsthand, why, even while it's being recorded, you know, it's just mind blowing. So, and then moving forward to 2017, we had uh, the same, and the vocalizers, they, they almost have personalities, almost like your voice versus, you know, my voice, anyone's voice. You can tell someone by their voice. They have different tones, I guess, like a tonality to it. On the spectrogram, you know, they still hit within a certain uh, frequency and a certain range, but the tone's just a little bit different. And so I was actually really fortunate to pick up uh, all of this information. But there weren't as many vocalizers. In 20, late 2017, early 2018, there is a new vocalizer now. And the best way I can describe this vocalizer is almost like uh, 
like a, a young man going through his adolescent phase hitting puberty mm. and that and that his voice would crack it would start off as just one of those beautiful long howls and then his voice would actually crack and that vocalizer seems to be one of the only ones this year in 2019 sometimes they harmonize uh, what do you mean by harmonize i could best describe it as almost trying to match pitches they're doing the same pitch or they're trying to do the same pitch you think right yes it's like if you if you go to a choir like a choir or you listen to a group of singers mm -hmm. you'll definitely hear you know the baritones the basses and you know the altos and sopranos but when they all come together and they kind of harmonize while you know vocalizing because for the most part they they typically traditionally do like an Ohio howl. I'll have to send you one of these clips. It's absolutely fantastic. You said the most frequent is the Ohio howl. That's what we heard when we were there. Well, what yeah. else do you hear? Do you hear screams? Do you hear growls? You know, do you hear yells? The families actually reported different vocalizations like that. In in my research and through the evidence that I've recorded. I have not recorded anything that I would actually consider a whoop or a scream. Now, the family also reports chatter, and it, it's they describe it as almost like children giggling in the woods. And they they even have they have had um, they're building a great big pool barn, and they had Amish over there, and even the Amish came in to me one afternoon and told me about hearing children in the woods. So that was pretty interesting, but those are, those were all daytime and my recorders actually run at night. So I tried having a daytime recorder and I, I was not able to catch any of those. Now, interestingly enough, I was able to catch a growl and it did it twice while their son who at the time was, uh, he was five. Uh, was outside. They had a little sun, like a sandbox just outside of their three season room. And you actually hear their, their son open the screen door. You hear the screen door slam. And after this impressive growl and you hear the kid open the sliding door and say, words, words, Bigfoot. And then you hear the door slam again. Like it actually startled this child. And even to this day, if you say Bigfoot, he kind of shrinks and runs over to his mom. I'm not sure if it's just he's too young, but anytime you bring up Bigfoot to him, it he just kind of just walks away and laughs. And it's almost like he just really doesn't want to talk about it. So I really hope it wasn't terrifying, but it was so loud. I actually thought it was a chair scraping on concrete. Whoa. Until I played it again, played it again. It, it caught me off guard. I mean, the spike hit so hard. I was like, what is that? And no, we actually had that sent out to a primatologist. He said, uh, yeah, that's a growl. I was like, wow, cool. So, yes, that, that I do have. And then um, just uh, different types of howls. But they all seem to be the howl. Yeah, because they, they get them a lot. I mean, George, I know the first recordings you got, 
he was inside his bedroom recording on just a cell phone. And it was so loud. Is it a brick house? Yes. Yeah, and it was okay. coming. You could still hear it through. It was so loud that you could hear it in the house through the brick walls. Correct. And then the, the second recording, um, he actually opened up the window and held his the microphone to the screen. And that's still one of the just an absolutely phenomenal audio clip. And that one's posted on the website as well. B, do you hear a lot of knocking in the neighborhood? Or is it just vocalizations? You know, early early in this investigation, yes, there were knocks. There were knocks. There were wonderful knocks. Uh, since 2016, they really have not knocked at all. Randomly, intermittently, maybe I'll, I'll catch one or two a month, but not anything like like you would expect or like it first started off. And then there was also um, some mimicry that was going on. Uh, there was seemed to be a rather large population of hoot owls, great horned owls. They have a very particular call. They're solitary. They're not, you know, social like, you know, your barred owls or your screech owls. And there seemed to be a lot of these hoot owls. And one night, one of the hoot owls seemed to cough. But I know that they're, historically speaking, you know, people have said that, you know, Sasquatch activity included you know, making pig noises or trying to imitate different animals. So I'm, while I can't vet that one, I, it was very interesting that as far as the knocks go, they're not really knockers. Well, you know, uh, I know that owls can turn their head quite a, quite a range, you know, almost 180 degrees. And it seems to me that often turning of one's head goes along with coughing. <laughs> yeah. The dog wanted to do any help. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a nurse you know about this stuff right <laughs> absolutely you are correct on both accounts <laughs> so i just that was just one of the more interesting well more interesting thing. but that's so, one of the fun so, things about doing the audio recording is you learn all sorts of night animal sounds and thank god so, for hunters and youtube if you get stuck and, you know, different people who are resources where you can say, hey, what is this? And and naturalists, yep, go talk to them. Yeah, you know, um, from what you've been telling us, just to, from the beginning of this uh, interview, um, you're doing everything right. Um, you are, you, you found a good situation. You decided to get in deep there. You're not spreading yourself too thin, in other words. You've chosen a research location that is, Easy to get to for you, two minutes out of the way or two miles out of the way, um, close to where you live. You are frequenting the area. You said you were going for walks down in the hollow um, almost every time you were there, getting to know the land. You're meeting the neighbors. You're getting the, the history of the area. And when you get results, you're not only sending them to experts, but when you get results that you can identify, you are uh, actually reaching out to other people in similar communities, the hunting community or wherever. To say, hey, what is this? Can anybody identify this? You're doing everything right. I mean, you, you should write a textbook about what you're doing as a researcher. It's fantastic, Lisa. <laughs> really. Well, you have to keep your skepticals on. Sasquatch should be the last thing you go to. 
rule out yeah. all of the yeah. other obvious. That's true. So, but thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, you're doing a service to the community, and I really do mean that. So, um, so the the vocalization stuff is still go ongoing, right? And now, now, when when you go uh, download or you get the card or something like that, or whatever you're doing, you get the card out of the uh, the recorder, um, and you put a new one in, check the batteries or whatever you have to do. Then what? You have this card. Do you, do you listen to it in real time? Do you visually scan it for the right um, frequencies? Do you do you I don't know. Do you hire small children to do? I mean, what do you what do you do to like get through this immense amount of raw data that you have to sift through? That is a wonderful question. If I could hire someone to do this full time, if I could afford that, I absolutely would. It consumes so much time. It was a lot easier before the long duration recording project. And when I mean long duration, I mean I can set the recorder out in the field. It can record for almost a month at a time. And I wow. have found that I, I know it's really great because you can leave it in the field completely undisturbed where it becomes just part of a natural thing, if that's a thing. Um, whereas instead of, you know, a person being out there, you know, interrupting the environment every day, like I was, mm -hmm. but uh, the downside of that is now you have almost a month to try to get through. So I am actually fortunately backed up for a while. So what, yeah, what I try to do is uh, blow through it, I guess, for lack of a better word, as, as quickly as possible, and then go back through it. I like to look at the entire segment on the spectrogram, and then I go through it and I hit the peaks and the, the you know, the highlights and the spikes individually and the you, you can't rely on the spectrogram solely just because of all the extra ambient noise you have to it takes time it really does because it, especially you know we have cicadas we have crickets we have frogs we have whippoorwills you want to talk about one of the most obnoxious creatures on this planet when you're going through audio is the whippoorwill how did you learn how to do uh, what to look for on the spectrograph? There was a lot of trial and error. And actually, um, Monongahela has a, a website, and it's uh, Sasquatch Bioacoustics. And he uses um, Audacity to look through his. But he has enough information on there. That, and I also reached out to another gentleman, Charles Kimbrough, as well as a uh, an Ohio investigator, Charlie Page, and talk to them a little bit about how they, what their methodology is for this. So um, I actually, believe it or not, my son, <laughs> he records his own music. He's, he's quite the musician and, you know, has an album and all this other stuff, but he records his own uh, music through a program called Reaper, which is very similar, uh, but there's still a learning curve. So he actually taught me how to use the program and then fine-tuning it and based off the data that I received from you know the different vetted uh, reports that you're able to put together an algorithm that works and then if there's anything that comes up that you know it's just really I just can't put my finger on then I you know I send it out and have someone else analyze it and just either 
legitimatize or give some pointers on you know the the sound clip. Right. You know, Audacity is a fantastic program for listeners who are interested in this avenue of research because it's totally free. Um, it, it's widely used. You can learn a lot about it online from the community who's already put it in the use. Um, it, it's one of the more common um, uh, software. And, and, and like I said, totally free. You go download it right now while you're listening to the podcast and uh, jump in right away. So um, uh, you don't have to use Reaper or any of those other grim softwares, but you can use Audacity <laughs> or anything else um, and do a great job. And by the way, B, let me ask you, I, I know that you've upgraded your audio equipment, your recording equipment, probably several times over the last three years or so. But you started out, you said earlier, with a Tascam. And and I, I don't I don't get nosy or nebby, as they say out in your corner of the world. Um, but how much did that cost? Like 100 bucks, something like that? Yep, I went to I think it was Guitar Center, and it yeah. was a hundred. And I was so broke when I first started. I went to Best Buy and bought a thirty dollars Sony. Yeah, exactly. You the whole great. You, you made my point beautifully that if you're interested in this avenue, you don't even have to be there. You can just put it out and let the batteries drain with a with a less than a hundred dollar piece of equipment and free software, and boom, you are a Bigfoot researcher trying to record Sasquatch vocalizations. And you, everybody's got to start somewhere. And eventually, three years down the line, you can be like B and upgrade your equipment and stuff. But everybody should be out there trying to bring back something beyond a story. And audio recordings are fantastic bits of evidence. They don't solve the puzzle, nothing you can take to the bank. But they build on, build on our knowledge. And more importantly, as B was saying earlier, they build on your knowledge about your specific Bigfoots. Um, you, you think there's four of them in your neighborhood and a new one might be going through puberty even? That's a that's a pretty wild hypothesis, but why not? Why shouldn't that be a hypothesis? Now it's time to gather evidence to support that hypothesis. You know, footprint tracks of the appropriate size, sighting reports of a similar animal, that sort of thing. So again, textbooks. You, you should think about a textbook, B. You're fantastic. <laughs> huh. I've, had, I've had a lot of mentors, so just putting together what works. I've had a lot of poor mentors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so thank you, you too. I appreciate it. <laughs> if you could have, so, uh, if you had like some dream equipment to get, what would you want to get if you had a sponsor? Oh my gosh, if I had a sponsor, oh geez, I would get surveillance equipment. The audio, the audio uh, equipment now is we actually have it hooked up to a solar panel. So it drains almost zero battery life. It is in a great location um, in the field the test. It's been out in the field for, oh, geez, three months, and it's been flawless. So at this point, and what I kind of wanted to do back when, you know, these the Sasquatch were on his property was set up a security system, almost like a, like a continual feed. That would be amazing because, and, and the reason I say that is because there's actually a gentleman uh, who lives as the crow flies three miles from this particular property. And he has a recorder that he puts out as well. Um, kind of on the backside of his property. And there was one particular occasion he sent me an audio clip and I was able to match it with one. What of do you mine. mean by that? What do you mean match it? He had the timestamp 
He had the date. I pulled my recorder, my file, and we were ab- I was actually able to match the vocals. Oh, it was the same vocalization being recorded at two different locations at the same time. Exactly. Oh, wow. That, I'm not sure that's ever been done before. Well, there you go. So, but that led me to believe that it was possible or even plausible to figure out and kind of determine, you know, what what area these vocalizers are, where they're at. So some form of, I mean, the, the game cams are great, but not exactly perfect. But having something, you know, a little bit more... Um, savvy as far as the technology field goes and, and surveillance, I, that would be my dream piece of equipment. You know what would be interesting to obtain um, for your specific research site, um, if anybody has really deep pockets and is listening and wants to help be out, um, I, I guess the police or military utilize some sort of technology um, that basically listens for gunfire and then has a directional sort of unit in it as well. So if they hear a gunfire, they can tell what direction is coming from. Wouldn't it be interesting to set up two or three of those along the hollow and uh, uh, you know tune it to listen for vocalizations? So when two or three, you'd only need two, but three would be better. If two different recording units picked up a vocalization or a knock or whatever, um, they could triangulate and locate where that thing is exactly pretty much probably within a few yards or a few tens of yards at least, which is way close enough. That would be a dream piece of equipment for your audio project as well. I would imagine. I have no idea. I have no idea how much that costs because I know that I can't afford it. So I don't even bother looking. Uh Yeah. I don't know how much Lamborghinis cost either for the same reason. (laughs) That's brilliant because, uh, I, and and I tried to um, research just because of the the terrain with the you know the valleys and then you know the the plateaus even the hills you know the farms different terrain kind of it changes sound and if you've ever tried to read up on you know sound waves and how sound carries and how sound travels. That's a doctorate degree. You ever tried these parabolics? Yes. Uh, how'd that work out for you guys? You want the truth? Yeah. I made it out of a pastry lid and a mono mic. That's all right. Did it work? That <laughs> worked great. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. It really looked hillbilly hilarious. Yes, but you know what? It worked. And I had it set up through the recorder with a set of headphones. Those were good. We saw, <laughs> we've seen people with like plastic big Tupperware salad bowls mounted on PVC pipes, and they're getting good audio that way. Yeah, I mean the, the it works the same. It it does. It's sometimes you got to think out of the box and on the fly. And there was a there was one night we were over there um, on the property, and there was a, a vocalizer that just was just going to town and but it was so far away it was so faint it was i just went digging through my car and you know what my car looks like that explains everything and yeah i had a pastry lid in there yeah you you don't need to spend a lot of money to you know 
none of us start out doing that. You know, we did, it's, it takes, you know, a lot of obsession to start spending a lot of money on things, you know, start slow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 